Hi, friends. <clears throat> Welcome to, uh, what's it? Locathor's Rust Talk? I think that's what I decided to call it. Um, I'm going to talk about a lot more stuff. And hopefully it'll be Rust-related. The, the subject today is similar to uh, the subject last week. Um, I mentioned all about uh, using Vulkan. And then it was like the next day after the last recording, I think it was probably, it maybe might have been a day or two, but it was, it was very soon after the previous recording when uh, Groves, who is the maintainer of uh, Glow, which is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Glow, Glow is on version 12, or 0.12.1. And it is a GL on whatever is what it stands for. And it has um, a, it exposes OpenGL or GLES or WebGL. And it exposes kind of a subset of all three of those things so that you can theoretically like you you pick glow as your target and then it should generally work as widely as possible it's part of the rust graphics organization and it's it's cool i am the one i wrote a crate called phosphorus and it is a so gl like vulcan is described in a machine readable format the format is xml that is kind of okay uh in the same way that vulcan has c code inserted into it because the chronos group is ridiculous uh the gl.xml file has some c code inserted directly into it because the chronos group is ridiculous um and so when you want to generate some bindings to GL, you get the latest GL.xml, or you, you know, you could have a slightly old version, it's fine. You get a GL.xml file and you parse it, and this gives you a bunch of information on the oh let me open up GLX. Actually, let me open up uh, in lib.rs. I have a data type error. Okay, okay. So it's, it has a, uh, the XML start at the top. Uh, it's less than question mark XML space version equals, and then in string, uh, 1.0 and encoding equals, and again, this is a string, UTF, all caps, dash eight. Um, and then there's a question mark and a greater than. So that's, that's the XML header. Um, I, I guess every XML file has to have that appropriate header to be a compliant XML thing. I don't know. I only know as much about XML as I needed to learn to parse this file. There's something called C data in XML. I have no idea how C data actually works. There's something called like external references or something crazy like that. I got no idea how that works because gl.xml does not interact with those things, so I never cared. 
inside of, for just past this header, there is, so XML is kind of like HTML. There's open tags and there's closed tags. And then there's stuff between those tags. And also a tag can be, um, I think it's called an empty tag. That's what my library calls it. I don't know if that's the official term, where, where the opening and closing is in a, a single entry. And then you still get it, like the, the, the empty tag has a tag name and it can still have tag attributes. Every tag, uh, an open tag can have attributes or an empty tag can have attributes. An end tag matches an open tag, but the end tag doesn't have attributes. And then in between the tag, in between an open and closed pair, there can be either bare text or there can be uh, tag pairs and empty tags inside of so, so it's like parentheses, all like all the each open parenthesis matches each closed parenthesis, and then you can have stuff inside the parentheses. Okay, okay. So we're on the same page. So we have this registry entry, and then there's a bunch of types of thing. Um, I based off of the uh, so I have this struct here. I I. I Groves wanted to update the GL bindings and over time the gl.xml file mutates. Sometimes it mutates much more than other times and it has mutated enough since I last wrote the little parser thingy and also the parser thingy is like it's not necessarily robust. It just like if it ever sees anything it doesn't recognize it immediately panics. Um, this is good if you're designing a tool that is not supposed to be used against uh like like arbitrary data like so 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 when you have a glxml file the only reason you want to interact with that is like once to read it and spit out rust code right you're not going to be parsing anybody's GLXML files. You're only going to be parsing the official GLXML file. So as long as the current version of the program can parse the current version of the GLXML file, then that's fine. And if because we're generating code with this, we want to be extra defensive. So if we see anything we don't understand, explode. And then the way you actually write the parser is you uh, you run cargo watch. So there's a cargo plugin called cargo watch. Um, yeah, everyone uh, type in type into your little terminals cargo space install space cargo dash watch, and cargo watch will um, you can have it run different tasks like you, you can do like cargo uh, space watch. Uh, space dash x and then and then you can put in a command there like uh, run and then like a greater than target slash out dot text is, is what I was doing and so every single time I make any change to the project cargo watch detects the change rebuilds and reruns the binary and because of that like piping the output to target slash out dot text it um it, it just throws the output into that file and then I can look at the output and I set cargo watch going and then I start adjusting the parser and I start changing match statements and I ch start changing where I'm unwrapping stuff and eventually the program stops panicking. That's when 
Uh, and then eventually, like, you know, there are to-do items. Like, uh, when you first start, it's like, op you're going to expect a registry tag, and then you're going to read until the close registry tag. And that'll, that'll span the entire file, right? So then inside the registry tag, you're actually going to decide, okay, obviously I don't want to skip all the information. I'm going to, I'm going to look at the first, I mean, I'm going to expect that nothing could possibly match the first result. And then you, you see the panic and then it's like, oh, well, uh, a type comes up or a comment comes up or whatever, whatever comes up. And you just start eating things and making sure that your tags match and making sure that every time you, you read in some information, you store it somewhere. And eventually the program doesn't panic and the program doesn't skip any information and you have completed your parser. And that's not, that's not how you should build every program that parses. But that is, I think, how you should build programs that parse specific documents, um, like specific machine readable formats that describe an API, for example, um, because you want to not lose any information. And if you encounter something you don't expect, then that can be a problem. Because if it's something you don't expect and you ignore it, then maybe that has an effect somewhere else. Maybe that changes how some other piece of code is supposed to operate or whatever. So you don't want to drop anything. Um, so just panic. It, you know, uh, uh, a panic is loud, and you'll you'll note that you will notice that the program panicked, and so you won't quietly drop any information. So you end up with this registry. Um, the the GL registry has uh, as as I have defined it within Rust has five types of thing. There are a uh, types, a, a list of type entries, a vector of type entries. Um, you have the enum lists. Um, there's, there's a tag called enums. And then inside the enums tag, there are individual enum entries. So an enum, as GL calls it, is what Rust calls a constant. So um, say there's the client attrib mask. Right. And so there's the GL client pixel store bit and the GL client vertex array bit and the GL client all attrib bits. And this is like one group of bit masks. It, it only has two bits in this grouping. But imagine that there are many, many groups and each group has one or more individual entries. So the way that we do this in Rust is we declare these like pub const whatever has type whatever equals and then the value. Um, and there's all these lists, um, don't, don't put Rust enums near a foreign function interface. If you're, if you're having that, if you're having data come back to Rust, never put a Rust enum near the foreign function interface such that data could come back to Rust in a way that is invalid because foreign code doesn't know what you're ever what your invariants are. So don't do that. So instead we, we for like for enums, we don't actually make special enum types and stuff. We just, it's a bunch of U32s. Sometimes they're U64s, but they're basically a, a huge, huge 
like hundreds and hundreds of U32 constants. It's not type friendly, but it is UB friendly. So, so anyway, we have the enum lists. So it's not it's not just a list of enums. It's a list of lists, if that makes sense. Um, and then there's the commands. A command is the name for a function in GL. GL calls them commands. I don't know why they don't use the word function, because that's what you call it, like in C or in basically any language. Maybe it's maybe it's called subroutine or whatever, but it's it's almost always called function. Very odd to call it commands like that. Um, and then you have features, which is like the API groups. So, so gl.xml describes gl and gles. Gles is like embedded systems. So like phones or Raspberry Pis or, or like embedded -y things like that that don't necessarily have the same kind of graphics capabilities as a... Uh, like a desktop computer or a laptop or whatever. Um, so each of these groups is um, so so there's each sorry the two trees um, well the two the two ladders the two paths the two categories each have different API levels like three point three four point zero four point one and so forth. Every time a new API level was introduced, it added new constants and new functions. All of this is described in the features listings. Also, there are extensions. If you, uh, the new functionality for these uh, graphics libraries is first added in an extension, and then in a later feature version, some extensions become core. And like, so there was an extension to allow debug output when things go wrong. And that turned out to be useful. So in a later version of GL, the debug extension became a core part of the API. And you don't have to, like, it's no longer optional. If, if the API says that it's going to give you a 4.1 level context, then you must have all 4.1 capabilities. Although, actually, I think the debug extension I just mentioned wasn't added until 4.3, so maybe that wasn't the best example. But anyway, and that's so that's all covered in the extensions. Now, Locathor, how do you make sense of any of this? Well, the types, uh, you can actually, you can, there are sufficiently few types that you can just look at the chart of types and uh, and like do it by hand. Actually, I, I did that. Um, the other day, and then I and then I put it out as a crate because I was sick of having to think about types ever again. So I just put it out as a crate. Now that there's the core FFI module that has a whole bunch of like C definitions, if it says in the XML file type def int glu int or whatever, or type def int gl int, and then type def unsigned int glu int, yeah. So a glu int is an unsigned int, and so in Rust we say pub type glu int equals core ffi c u int, and well c underscore u int, and now I don't have to care what u int is on the target anymore. I, all that conditional compilation has been handled by the core create for me. I'm very happy that they did that. It was silly. All the years that they said core isn't supposed to know about c, that was a lie. 
Um, obviously, Core knows about what the C what the target is, and should have definitions for how to interact with different foreign languages. Um, yeah, so I made a crate. It's GL underscore types. It's a new crate. Uh, you can go get it right now. I'd, I'd tell you that you can look at the docs for it right now, but um, actually docs.rs was way backed up. Like I published the crate this morning and then I was like 279th in queue or something. Uh, I checked like an hour and a half later and I hadn't moved many positions. I think, um, let's see. Uh, I wrote this, I sent this into some chat somewhere let's see at 2 17 p.m i estimated that it would be eight and a half hours um until docs.rs like finished out the queue if if the pace kept going then it'd be another eight and a half hours so like five hours from when i'm speaking right now still um which is sad i wish docs.rs very good service docs.rs. I just wish they had more runners, you know? More runners to churn through crates faster. Uh, I'm sure it's expensive or whatever. Um, so so, so we don't have to worry about those type aliases anymore. What about these enums and commands and features and extensions? Well, the enums are actually just a bunch of constants, right? We don't... It's not complicated. There's just a lot of them. But... Each of them is individually very simple. Pub const name colon type equals some expression. Now, uh, you might think, oh, sometimes the enum is given as decimal, sometimes it's given as a hex value, sometimes there's like a negative number. It's complicated to parse all that stuff. But actually, remember, we don't have to parse any of that stuff into an like into a number within our rust program when you're parsing you should here's when you're parsing my advice is to um so actually okay La language design nerds are going to tell me that i shouldn't use the word parsing here what i mean is tokenizing when we when we walk through the xml tree one tag or one text section at a time we are tokenizing the xml file and then these tokens get turned into meaningful data within our rust program that's the parsing stage so the parsing and tokenizing are kind of separate stages and i'm not an expert here i'm, I'm just i'm just regurgitating what other people have told me they say oh you should separate your your tokenizing and parsing stages and that'll make it easier on the parser because the parser doesn't have to handle as many kind of things The sort of the the wide possibility space of anything could be in that xml file has been narrowed down into just well there can be a start tag or a text or an end tag and that's all that we that's all that we have to think about um so that so the tokenizing stage narrows what what our program is thinking about uh thank you past us that wrote an xml tokenizing great um and then we have some sort of value so so sometimes it'll say like ox0001 or whatever right and it's it's meant to be a hexadecimal literal sometimes 
an enum will have a value that is um, a decimal value. Like it'll say like 256, for example, or just like one or two, for example. Um, and sometimes it will have a negative number value. Why does it have a negative number? I don't know. Even the even gl.xml does not know why some enum constants are negative numbers because it says in the comments that it, it says like right next it's like why these are negative numbers we don't know um that's just what they are and like once drivers start being developed you're not allowed to change these numbers so that's just what they are forever um and so that's fine. We we have it. We we're getting it in strings. We don't want to read it. We don't. We actually in this sometimes you might be you might be tempted to think, oh, we should take these strings and turn them into like numbers and then format them back out later. No, 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 no. That's that's actually the bad path. Take the string, keep it as a string, spit like whatever whatever string that they stuffed into the XML here that they expect. Because they're expecting some program, some Python script or whatever, to read this XML and then emit C code. And as far as numbers are concerned, C number literals and Rust number literals are compatible enough that we can just take strings in this file that sometimes are hex string and sometimes are decimal and sometimes are negative number or whatever. And we can just spit them into our Rust output and we don't have to think too hard about it. Except... If it's a negative number and we're like defining it as an unsigned const, then we can't do negative numbers. But actually, again, we can just do like we can do like if 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 this string like starts with and then like a minus sign character and then like have one case for that and then have the normal case. And we don't have to think about if it's hex. We don't have to parse digits or anything like that. That's. That's the bad path. Don't do don't do that. If you if keeping it as a bunch of strings that you're just throwing around will work, then just keep it as a bunch of strings. Save yourself the effort. Um so we have like 15 well not 1500. Uh like 1100 consts, I think maybe it is. I don't know. It's, it's a lot. Um we could, when emitting the list of all these consts, limit which consts are available, like have features for the different API levels. Like you build the crate uh, for GL 3.3, and then a const that was only introduced after GL 3.3 won't be available. That's certainly possible. The other option is that you just spit out everything. Uh, this is the path that Glow actually goes with. Um, when Groves had me um, generate stuff for Glow, he's just like, put everything, put everything in the file. And then like, I personally know enough GL that I won't use things improperly. And I just said, yeah, Groves, if you want to be a pro, then go be a pro. Um, and that's honestly probably better. Like, like having too much configs and conditional compilations and stuff 
like it's not going to save us a lot of compile time. We're not compiling out like huge amounts of code generation. It doesn't really matter to Rust if we make 700 or 800 constants because that extra 100 constants is it's it's nothing in terms of time to build the crate. Um and it doesn't necessarily like once there are cargo features and stuff, then people have to think about do I want certain features? Like, do I want to enable all features right away? Do I want to, like, not enable all features right away? Wait till I get a compile error because I accidentally use something that's out of what I want and then consider, like, readjusting my API target level. It's, it's, it's a lot to think about. I don't know. I don't I don't know for sure. I'm, I think I'm leaning towards probably do the config thing. And we can do that because... So the, the feature levels, inside each feature level... It's got a list. Uh, well, one of the things that it has is like a list of enums, and it's like OpenGL 1.0 had these enums. OpenGL 1.1 added these enums. 1.2 added these enums. So like, so like we can build an information list of if we assume that each cargo feature uh, requires the one like the the lower levels, so that as soon as someone has like cargo uh, feature for GL 3.3, then they also have 3.2 and stuff. Then each, then we can just look at each individual um, enum and emit it with a config. You know, config feature equals uh, GL 3 underscore 3, or, or like however we would convert that to a feature name. And we could, we could have configs on all that. But then the docs.rs build would have to be built for the full list. Uh, cargo feature, feature conditional compilation is definitely difficult to cope with sometimes. It's it's hard to know. And like like Saturday has this problem. You look at Saturday and it's like all these things, it's like all these warnings everywhere that you need to have different things turned on or like chumpsky you look at chumpsky and you need to have all these different features turned on to have different methods that you're looking at be available or win api it is it is a burden that you're passing along to the programmer as well as the benefit of like not letting them accidentally use the wrong thing hmm. i don't know i don't know so anyway, but 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 basically, yeah. There's all these feature lists, and it has uh, the enums and the commands. Now the commands are actually a little more tricky, because uh, for each command, where are we gonna put all these function pointers? Because when you connect to G to GL, you're not dynamically linking. I described before that you have to dynamically load. So, um. Grow WebGL requires that you keep all of your your GL context and function pointers and stuff like in a struct that is associated with like the the instance or whatever that your particular program is running inside. So like you're you're required to keep it in a struct somewhere. Um, since WebGL is required to keep it in a struct somewhere, and Glow wants to be um, compatible between desktop GL, embedded GL, and WebGL, then for, for desktop GL and embedded GL, it also wants to keep it in a struct somewhere. This turns out to be actually a pretty good idea 
because in C, uh, GL commands are like kept in a bunch of global statics. So every time you call a GL function, it actually looks inside some sort of global for the pointer that has been loaded by the loader function somewhere at the start of the program, which like filled in all the statics. And it's not thread safe, but if we have a struct that has all the stuff, then you can call a method on the struct and that is thread safe because you like the methods take ref self like like you could theoretically you shouldn't actually you should not be using gl from multiple um threads at the same time but you theoretically could call the function pointers from multiple threads if each thread had its own context and the contexts shared function pointer implementations, which is a thing that exists. Um, and you wouldn't be able to change any of the function pointers until someone had a uh, unique reference over the struct to start editing the fields. And so it's we, we get thread safe in the normal in the normal way that we have thread safety in REST with variables. And it's all convenient. And if you want to have a global version, this is the cool part. Um, if you want to have global access to GL, all you have to do is take a blank uh, function of structs, which you can make a like you can make a const for, you can make like a literal for, and then you put that in an RW lock, and the RW lock goes in a static. So you have something like static, you know, like capital GL, uh, typed as uh, RW lock over a GL funds. Well, the name of our struct that holds all of our GL functions is GL funds, like capital G, lowercase l, capital F, lowercase ns, GL funds, like like the fun trait. Um, and, then, and then the RW lock lets us do all the, it, it lets us access our global pile of GL functions, again, in a pretty thread safe way. We can, we can get a write lock over our RW lock, and then that allows us to call our loader function once we have a write lock. And then we let go of the right lock. And then every time we want to call a GL function, we just take a read lock on the, we just take a read lock and then we call the method. And you might think, oh, Locathor, that's, that's ridiculous. You're adding an atomic access to all of the things. Yeah, well, you're not supposed to make many draw calls in the first place per frame. And it's not a huge amount of overhead when there's no contention. If if only one thread is using GL in the first place, which is basically how it's supposed to go most of the time, then you can grab up readers and forget about readers all day long. And it just, you know, bumps and decrements a little atomic value somewhere. And that's super fast on modern computers. So it basically doesn't end up mattering. Um, and we've taken our struct loader and we've restored the ability to have global GL function usage if we wanted to do that. We don't even have to do that, but just if you wanted to do that. Um, so that's, that's what I have mostly worked on since last time because Groves asked me to update the, uh, the GL.XML parser handler thing. So let's see if I can summarize my 
If I, oh, 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 that's that's a thing I wanted to mention. I forgot. I almost forgot. A person who I don't want to. This this was a bit of a complaint, a bit of a that's too hard on their part. So I don't want to. I don't want to point a finger at them too much. They were saying, you know, these XML files, these are ridiculous. There's these there's C code inside there to parse them properly. You need to like read out chunks of the declarations and then like write them to a file and call a C compiler to make sure that you parse them properly. No, don't do that. Um, there are, there are, it is factually true that there are portions of C code that are inside of gl.xml and vk.xml. However, calling a C compiler to parse that C code for you is ridiculous because the C code in these files does not change. So the reason to have any of this be automatically generated is not only because there are thousands of entries and doing it by hand would take too long, but also because as new updates are done, then the XML will change and you want to rerun the generator on the new XML to verify that your Rust code matches the latest definitions. And that's true. This that's 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 a concern. However, uh, what actually changes from version to version is like metadata, like stuff that would go into doc comments. Like this field is uh, it, it's it's not marked as optional in one version, and the next version makes it optional, and so it adds an attribute on the member tag uh, inside some sort of struct tag or whatever. And in the generated Rust code. That doesn't change anything in terms of the, the data type that Rust uses. But you would change the doc comment on that field to like put a bullet point at the end and say like optional or however you would express that. You would express that to the programmer in a documentation way, but the data type used for the field almost surely would not change. Um, and so the the file needs to be reparsed regularly if you want the latest stuff. But what you care about having the parser be able to do is the portions that are likely to change. So the portions of the XML file that have C code in them are actually not going to change. Like, like it might add an entry. It might remove an entry, like I might say this entry is deprecated or whatever, but they're not realistically going to be constantly changing the the C code embedded inside of these things. So you can literally just look at it and like, like all the parser needs to do is check that what it sees is what it expects to see. And then it can emit some bespoke content, like, like the definition for how to, um, for like, uh, what's it called? Okay, GL debug proc is a it's a, a type def for a function pointer in C. I don't even want to begin to try and describe how function pointer type defs work in C. I couldn't do it properly. All I know is I have consulted the sages. I have spoken to people that can read C code much better than me. And I've said, here's the type def. 
I think this is the correct translation in terms of like a Rust function signature. Is this correct? And I spoke to a group of C experts, the room, the chat room, the dark arts channel on the Rust community discord. And they said, yeah, that's what it should look like. And then I recorded that. And now the parser can check that when it sees the GL debug proc definition, is it the same definition as it saw last time? And if it is, nothing's wrong. And if it isn't, shout, panic. And so you don't you don't have to have it parse unlimited complexity C code. You just need to look at some bit of C code, parse it by hand, and then and then stop. Don't hook it up to an entire C compiler. That's silly. Um Yeah. Yeah, well, so this comes back to to what I was what I was trying to wrap up earlier. Like like make it handle basically the minimal case with like a little flexibility if things change some. But but don't try to be fully super general the whole time. That is going to make a very hard to create parser. Like I I rewrote the entire from scratch um phosphorus crate. The entire phosphorus crate, all the all the things that it collects, all its ability to output stuff um, over the weekend, like two, three days. I'm not a superstar or crazy programmer. I just constantly took the dumb path, the dumb and fast path. Um, and I was able to redo it. I didn't watch as much anime this week while programming, but you know, I still watched, still watched some anime shows. Still watched, um, a little bit of the Twitch streaming, you know, television, that sort of stuff. You can get a lot done if you just do the quick and dumb path with programming and make the other path panic. Um, this isn't, that's not how you make robust software. If you need software that's like going in anything important that shouldn't shut down, like a web server or a car or anything like that, then, you know, this, that's not a, that's a not an appropriate style of programming in that context. But for something that just needs to read a machine-readable format once and generate some code once so that you can check it into a crate, just quick and dirty all the time. Um, let's see. Do I have any other advice? Nope. Uh, I, think, I think that's it for this episode. It says, it says I've recorded 38 minutes. Um... I'm going to run a truncate silence filter over this, uh, which will, it cuts down the maximum duration of a silence, which mostly makes me sound way more like I've planned what I'm doing. Like if I, if I just stop speaking for a moment, I can just count to 20 in my head or whatever. Um, the truncate silence would just cut all that down. And it seems like I constantly have new ideas to talk about. So uh, that's my advice if you're making a, a podcast or whatever. Truncate those silences. It'll make you sound smart. Um, let's see. Uh, the email is locathor.rust at gmail.com. Send in a question. And I will try, if, if, it's in anything, if it's anything to do with Rust, try to answer it in an episode. Um, I got I got a GitHub, github.com slash locathor. You can look at the coding stuff I've been working on. You can sign up to be a GitHub sponsor. Um, for all the other locathor stuff, you can just go to locathor.com. It's got 
links to like Mastodon, co-host, Twitter, all that stuff. You can ask questions that way. But I would prefer if you send in the question as an email to the email address so that I can answer it on air. Because I think that would be fun. So until next episode, uh, see you folks.